All right, you can open up your Bible to Genesis chapter 1. Over the next five weeks, we will spend most of our time in Genesis 1 and 2 because when we think about personhood, it's good to begin at the beginning, and it's good to begin before the fall. Because oftentimes when we think about what a person is, if you've grown up in a Christian environment, maybe the first thing you heard about a person was that a person is broken by sin. That's not the first thing the Bible has to say about what a person is. So we should kind of go all the way back to the beginning of the beginning and explore it together. And after these five weeks, we'll jump back into Romans. We'll do 11 weeks in Romans 8. But I wanted us to spend time asking this question in God's word together, what is a person? And I know it can feel like, well, we're people. We don't need to be told what we are. But we do need to be told what we are because it's very easy to forget what we are. It's very easy to forget who we are without, you know, sounding too alarmist. There are whole structures of the world that are built around confusing you as to the question what you are and who you are. There's an an attention economy that's trying to convince you of false stories. They're incredibly persuasive. And the way they tell our stories is incredibly captivating and it's everywhere. It's pervasive. And so we need to spend some time thinking through the question, what is a person? And it's not a question that's unique to the modern mind. Okay, maybe we feel some unique extreme duress around it or confusion around it. But even the psalmist asked this question. Psalm 8, the psalmist speaking to the Lord, What is man that you are mindful of him? What is man that you take heed of him? What is man that you care for him? Part of the uniqueness of humans as creatures is that we are the only creatures who ask questions about God, about self, and the world. And I think that we might be more confused than we let on. And I'm quite confident that our world is deeply confused about how to answer the question, what is a person? Tragically, we often forget what we are. We often forget who we are. We often forget to whom we belong. And even those who haven't fully forgotten are tempted to forget at every turn. Your personhood, who and what you are, is constantly under threat. It's constantly under temptation. It's constantly under confusion. And there's widespread confusion as to how you should view yourself. And if we don't know who we are, if we don't know what we are, then we will not be prepared to treat others in a way that is kind, loving, faithful, wise, and truthful. And ultimately, everyone everywhere appeals to an ultimate commitment when they ask this question. They appeal to some measure of faith, something that they believe in to help rationalize and make sense of what they are as a person, of who they are as a people. And so I wanted us to turn our attention and ask God's word. What does the Bible say about personhood? What does the Bible say about what we are? What does the Bible say about who we are? And so I'm going to read Genesis 1, 26 through 31. And after, after I read it, I'll say, this is the word of the Lord. You're invited to respond, thanks be to God. The reason we do this is because we're thankful that God hasn't left his people in silence. He's spoken. So we want to give thanks for that. I'm going to read Genesis 1, starting in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. 
And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, when we think about Genesis 1, it's important that we ask the question, who was hearing this at the first? Who was the first audience of Genesis 1? Because that should probably inform or shape to some degree how we read Genesis 1. And this is not just true of Genesis 1. It's true of the whole book of Genesis. And true of the whole book of Genesis is true of the whole of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. The original audience of this was post-Exodus Israel. Okay? Post-Exodus Israel. These were Israelites who had been rescued by Yahweh from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt. They had been brought out of Egyptian slavery and were being brought to Canaan, the promised land. So these are people for uh, roughly 300 to 400 years for whom life had been a trial. It had been full of afflictions. They had been undergoing slavery and the unjust rule and reign of Pharaoh. Now, there is no question in my mind that as the Israelites left Egypt, they were grateful that God had rescued them. But at the same way that they were grateful, they were probably very confused as to how they should view themselves in the world. They had spent 400 years under an oppressive regime that had convinced them that Yahweh had forgotten them, that they were the forgotten people, and that they were slaves. So part of what Israel needs to be reminded of on the other side of Egypt after the Exodus event is not only who is God, but who are you? Who were they? They need to be told, they need to be restoried, they need to be refashioned, they need to be reshaped because they've spent hundreds of years living under the rule and reign of a false story. And so when we jump into Genesis 1 with the question, what is a person? I think there are four things that we see are essential to personhood. And I want to walk you through, I'm going to give them to you right up top because if you're a note taker, you can follow along better this way. The first one is that we are creatures. We're creatures, okay? That's the first one. The second one is that we are image bearers. We're image bearers. The third is that we are members. And the fourth is that we're partners. What's a person? A person is a creature, an image bearer, a member, and a partner. Now, I want us to explore this together here. Creatures. Right out of the gate we get this. Look at Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Looking at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. Right out of the gate, Genesis 1 is telling you two very important things. There is a creator God and you are not him. There is a creator God and you are not him. We are not the creator God. We are creatures created by the creator God. This is what we might call, it's what theologians call the creator-creature distinction. That we, 
even when we image God in the work of cultivation and creation, which we do, and we'll get to that in a moment, we are not the creator God. Why? Because we are limited, and he is not. We are limited, and he is not. God is the creator. We are created. God is the creator. We are creatures. Before we can begin to talk about what a person is, we have to keep in mind what a person is not. You and I are not God, though we often like to pretend that we are. You and I are not God. We are not God, though we often like to pretend that we are. Because we are creatures and not the creator, we have built-in limits. Do you know this about yourself? You have built-in limits. You have limitations on your life. There are things you cannot do that are by design, right? Let me give you some examples of limits. God is creator. He's omnipresent. Do you know what that means? He's everywhere. He's not constrained by time and space. God is creator. He's omnipresent. You and I, we're not omnipresent. We can be in one place at one time. We're not omnipresent. God is. God the creator is omniscient. You know what omniscient means? God knows all things. God knows what is. He knows what isn't. He knows what could be. God knows everything that is knowable. Guess what? You, you don't. Neither do I. It's a we thing, not just a you thing. God is omniscient. We are not. We're limited in our knowledge. We can know things, and we can know things truthfully and truly, but we can't know all things. We're limited. God is not limited in that way. God the creator is omnipotent. This means he's all-powerful. You and I are not. God is eternal and timeless. You and I are not. Why does this matter so much? Why does it matter that right out of the gate we understand that when we ask the question, what is a person, that our first word is we are a creature? Why is this crucial? Because we are tempted all the time in every way to defy these limits. Because we are tempted all the time and in every way to reject what we are by nature and to try to pretend to be something that we can never be. Do you know how we know this is an ever-present temptation? Because it's the first temptation. In Genesis 3, what does the serpent, when he's trying to deceive Adam and Eve, what does he tell them the benefit of eating from the fruit of the tree will be? You will be like God. The first temptation in the garden is to distrust God's word for the purpose of becoming God for oneself. If we miss this, that we are a creature, then we will constantly, consciously or subconsciously, try to live as something we can never be. And when you begin to do that, do you know what happens? It crushes you. It crushes you. The only thing on the other side of trying to be God when you are not God, the only thing on the other side of that is exile. It's wilderness It's living in God's world, trying to control God's world, and you can never do it. It is a failed endeavor. It has always been. It will always be. It is a road that leads to destruction, and it is a road we so often undertake because it promises us something that it can never deliver. It promises us that we will be God, that we will be God. 
And it never delivers on that promise. And the road is dangerous and slippery. And it always leads to destruction because we are created and not the creator God. We will find freedom when we embrace God-given limits. We will find freedom when we embrace God-given limits. It's easy to try to live limitless lives. You know why it's easy? Because of two compelling false stories and three superficial superpowers. You ready? The two compelling false stories is this. The first is consumerism. The first is consumerism. That's a compelling false story. Don't believe me? Check your tags on your clothes, right? Right? Don't believe me? Check the brands in your house. Don't believe me? Watch the commercials. Don't fast forward through them. We live in a time in which we are constantly being told, you are what you own. You are what you possess. You are the experiences or rewards or accolades that you accumulate. We are told all the time in every way that we are the sum of what we own. And because of this story, we are easily tempted to believe that we're only worthy, we only matter if we can live the life of our dreams. If we can live the life of our dreams. And these dreams, indubitably, are almost always shaped by the market. They're they're usually not these kind of genuine, authentic, true, oh, like the individual in complete isolation from any external forces. This is my authentic dream. No, most of the time it's shaped by whatever picture of the good life is assaulting us at that time. And it is assaulting us constantly. And because of this, it's very easy for us to live into this false story, to kind of lean into it. It's, it's, a, it's, like, it's almost like it's a rail that's well-greased. It's, it's a well-trod groove that's easy for us to walk through because the path is so clear for us culturally and in our imagination. Consumerism attacks the very notion that we are creatures and not the creator because it's built on endless accumulation. It's built on the sense that we can really have control over all things and it, it, it leaves us disappointed. It leaves us disillusioned. But that's not the only false story. There's also the false story of existentialism. The idea that you've got to make your own meaning. That you're really only worthy if your life makes a difference. If you're not having this sizable, global impact, then you know what? Your life is really inconsequential. It diminishes the small, the local, the micro, and expands it up to the global and the macro. And these two stories are often tied hand in hand. How many products now sell themselves to you on the basis that if you buy this product, they'll do something good for you somewhere else? Right? If you buy this bottle of water, we'll dig a well here. They, they, like they know how to traffic in the first story that is so native to you, which is consumerism. So they'll go, great. If we can sell you your own redemption, if we can sell you your own meaning back to you, then maybe you'll buy it. And we do. We fall into these false stories so quickly, and we do so because we have some superficial superpowers available to us. You know what those are? There's so many of them. Let me just give you a few of them. We're convinced we can live in these stories. Probably for the first time in the history of the world, we can actually feel some degree of certainty around the illusion that we can have everything that the world tells us we should have. And why? Because of three superficial superpowers. The first one is pretend omniscience. Pretend omniscience. We pretend to be omniscient. When was the last time you had a question and you couldn't answer it in the group that you were in and you didn't pull out your phone and just say, well, let me just Google it real quick, right? Really, at a moment's notice, we can be like, oh, wow, we don't know this. 
We can know it right now, right? There's no uncertainty. There's no, I don't, I'm not so sure about that. There is, no, we can figure it out right now. We can know the answer right now. Let's pretend omniscience. We can't know all things, but we like to pretend that we can. Pretend omnipresence, right? Pretend omnipresence where we can be in many places all at once. We can be with our kids at the dinner table, but we can also be looking at what just happened in a country 3,000 miles, 10,000 miles, 15,000 miles away. We can be considering to ourselves, okay, I'm right now, I'm here at this coffee shop and I'm trying to dig into God's word, but you know, I probably should check the news to figure out what's happening over there, right? Probably should text this person. Let me jump online real quick. And we do that so quickly because we want to conjure our own belovedness. We want love on our time and our way. And because of this, social media is an immediate gratifier for that. Pull out our phone and be like, how many likes can this get? How many, uh, how many thumbs up? How many hearts can this get? You know that feeling when you, when you post something? Be honest if you're out there. That feeling when you post something and it doesn't get as much attention as you thought it would? It feels like, you're like, oh, what happened? Right? Why didn't they like that? Why didn't they message me an emo, an emo, what's it called? An emoji? Emoji face. I'm so Gen Z, it's unbelievable, guys. Why, why, why didn't they send me the emoji face with the hearts for eyes, right? Don't they love this thing? We want to conjure our own belovedness. Social media gives us the temptation that we think we can. Scripture tells us a different story. Our lives don't matter because of what we do. They matter because of what we are. Dignity is not conditional on what you do. This is true for the Christian. It's true for the not Christian. Dignity is not conditional on what you do. What we do flows out of who and what we believe we are. And at the very first word, when we think about what a person is, we begin with creature. But we're not like all the other creatures. So we don't stop there. Because there are other creatures, right? Some of you live with other creatures in your home. I'll never understand it, but you've chosen to live your life that way. And you know what? Blessings to you. And all of your pets, but we're not like other creatures. Why? Because we're image bearers. Look at verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are image bearers. We are royal by design. We aren't the same as any of their other creatures in the garden because we are those who bear the image of God. We are created, but we're created unique. We are created in the image of God. What does this actually mean? This is a question that I feel like most people always kind of feel, but they're afraid to ask. What does it mean that we're created in the image of God? Does it mean that we physically look like God, right? What does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, there's three things that you can kind of hang your hat on when you're thinking about what does it mean to be a creature made in the image of God. The first is we are spiritual creatures. We're not just body. We're not just material. We're body and soul. We have souls. We have consciousness. Right? We have self-reflection. We are creatures not just of body, but of body and soul. We are not just material creatures. We are creatures made up of body and soul. We are communal creatures. We are communal creatures. God is triune, three in one. 
and the unbroken, eternal, divine fellowship in which there is no subordination or hierarchy is reflected in our community impulse, our desire to live in fellowship not only with God, but also with one another. We were created for fellowship. You were created for relationship. You are a relational creature. Humans are creatures who are created for life together. Life together. Not just survival together, but life together. Right? Mutuality. Love. Dreaming. Partnership. Joy. Laughter. Sorrow. We are created for life together. We're spiritual creatures. That's the way we image God. We're communal creatures. And lastly, we are reflective creatures. We're reflective creatures. We reflect God in a unique way as we share in what theologians call the communicable attributes of God. Now, I know that's a big phrase. Communicable attributes of God. What does it mean? It means these are things that are true about the nature of God that we as image bearers reflect into the world. Let me give you an example of an incommunicable attribute. An incommunicable attribute is omniscience. You can't know all things. That's by design. It's incommunicable. It's not a two-way street with you and God. God knows all things. You don't. That's never going to change. Let me give you some examples of communicable attributes of God. Love. Love. God loves. God is love. And while you and I are not love by nature, we can love. And our love can be truthful. Our love can be genuine. Knowledge. While God knows all things and it is only for God to know all things, we can have true knowledge. We can know things. Right? Creativity. While God is the creator God, unlimited, without the limitations we have, we are sub-creators. We're, we're creating out of what God has created. We're cultivators. We're stewards, not owners. Right? Entrusted with God's world so that we can create things. Some of you are in jobs where you're researching how to create life-saving medicine. Some of you are in jobs where you're trying to create beautiful things that tell a story. Some of you are in jobs where you are trying to bring order to chaos, creating structure where there is confusion. This is a way that you can reflect God in the world. Holiness. Only God is holy holy, holy, as we hear in Isaiah 6. But we are called to live holy lives, and it's possible that we can live holy lives by the power of God, and it's a way we reflect God in the world. You see, God created us, but we're not like any other creatures. We're image bearers. We're image bearers, created to reflect God as spiritual creatures, communal creatures, and to practice what God is by nature as we receive God's power through grace, love, knowledge, creativity, holiness, will, and volition. So many ways that we reflect God in the world, and it is one of the principal reasons why God has set humanity apart as his image bearers. Look at verse 28. After it says that God creates them, verse 28, and God bless them. God bless them. This blessing is both a signal to us of God's special fellowship with humanity and his consecration of the human person as unique in all of creation. This blessing is, is a signal to us of God's unique fellowship. God fellowships with humanity in a way that is unique among all creaturely things. 
God does not fellowship with our dogs or cats. I say our like I have one. I don't. Your dogs or your cats. He doesn't fellowship with the elephants or the giraffes or the lions, however cool they might be. He does not fellowship with them in the same way that he fellowships with us. There is a unique blessing that exists in the relationship between God and humanity because we are his image bearers. And we have been made uniquely for fellowship with God and with one another. Now, because humans are image bearers, we don't have to earn our dignity. We don't have to earn our worth. There's no such thing as conditional dignity. No one has to prove that they're a person. You with me here? Sit on this for a second because you're living in a world where this is undermined at every turn. You're living in a dehumanizing world. Do you know that? You, whether you know it or not, you are. You're living in a dehumanizing world where you are constantly, and the world is constantly telling you and the others in it, that you have to become a person, or you have to become a person of worth. You have to become a person of dignity. So if you accomplish great things with your life, you're worthy. If you buy great things with your life, you're worthy. If you are able to do great things for the world, you're worthy. But, but the scriptures are telling us something different. We don't have To earn our worth, we, by virtue of God's creation of us as image bearers, we possess unconditional dignity from the beginning to the end, from the womb to the tomb. Andy Crouch says this in the book that we're making available to you. It says, you do not have to become a person. You do not have to prove you are a person. As long as you have been and as long as you will be, you are a person. You don't have to prove that you're a person. But yet, almost from the beginning of our lives, we are told that our worth is contingent on our usefulness. This is why, incidentally, our culture has such a low view of the elderly. This is why our culture has such a low view of babies, of children. It's why our culture has such a low view of those who experience physical or cognitive disabilities. Why is there such a low view? Because they're coming to the story, and so often we are too, coming to the person with a narrative that exists that's, what can you do for me? Or what can you do for us? Or what can you do for the world? When you make image-bearing contingent on usefulness, you enter into a way of living in this world that will lead to dehumanization. It will lead to exploitation of yourself, of others. Christians, we stand athwart that and we say, no. Worth and dignity is not contingent on what one might do. It's true of what one is by virtue of God's creation. This is unique. It's unique and it's a unique witness to the world when we embody it. I've often said the image of God is the most inconvenient doctrine. Do you know why? Because it means, once you begin to believe it, it means you cannot deal flippantly or transactionally with people any longer. You cannot raise them or lower them in your esteem based off of what they can do for you. It means that everybody becomes somebody who you say, you may not know it, but God has created you. You are an image bearer of God and you're worthy of dignity. And you may not live like that's true, but I know it's true. I want to invite you into living in that way with me.
That's a persuasive witness in a dehumanizing world. Our culture teaches us to believe that we are only what we can own, accomplish, or produce, and inevitably this shapes how we end up viewing others because we view ourselves transactionally, we view others transactionally, and we stomp over them. We rush past them. Image bearing slows us down because now I have to see you for what you are, which is a person not a means to an end, not something that I can use to get my own way, not just as somebody that's going to validate me. I have to come to you for who you are and for what you are. That's going to slow your life down when you believe it, drastically. And it should. We are creatures. We are image bearers. We are communal. We're communal. We're members. We're members. Genesis 2.18, look at it. We're skipping ahead a little bit here. Genesis 2.18, God creates Adam, and then you, you know this. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. It's not good for man to be alone. Now, there's a lot to say here, and I'm only going to say a small fraction of it, okay? But keep up with me. We are created for community. We're created for relationships. We are created to not live alone. And the Bible honors, from beginning to end, what we would often think of and consider as the nuclear family. The sacred relationship between a husband and a wife. The sacred responsibilities of a father and mother. The Bible honors this from the beginning all the way through the end. But it does that while also painting a much bigger picture of what life in the household of God looks like. What life in the household of God looks like. When we look at the New Testament church, we find that the church functioned as a collection of households. I was trying to find a definition of household, and this is the best one I could find. A household is both place and people, or maybe better, it is a particular people with a particular place. A household is a community of persons who may well take shelter under one roof, but also, and more fundamentally, take shelter under one another's care and concern. You with me? A household may well be a group of people in a place that take shelter under one roof, but more fundamentally take shelter under one another's care and concern. I hope you have somebody like this in your life. Maybe they don't live in your home, but you know that you take shelter under their care and their concern. You know that when the bottom falls out, they'll be there for you and with you. And if you don't have that group of people, if you don't have that person, then the church is a community that extends that blessing to the world. And collectively, as a church, we undertake that responsibility. Not even fundamentally in our ministry programs, but in our living of fellowship together. You understand that, right? That we as Christian households get to live extending care and concern to those around us, whether they are blood or not. Galatians 6.10, Paul uses the language of household. He says, so then, do good to everyone, but especially to those who belong to the household of faith. The church is a family. The church isn't like a family. The church 
is family, and we're called to live as members. And while this was beginning with one couple in the Garden of Eden over the story of redemption, it transforms, continuing to honor the marriage of a man and a woman while also pulling that into a greater and broader context of a household of faith, of which many families of different shapes and sizes will come together to live with Christ under one another's care and concern. This is counterintuitive. It's counterintuitive because the false gods of our age are furious. They're furious when we sacrifice our lives to care for those around us, particularly those that the world says we don't owe a responsibility to. But a spirit of radical individualism has shaped our culture. A spirit of radical individualism threatens the church at every turn. It threatens any meaningful embrace of God's heart for us to live meaningfully with each other. And you and I, if there is one spirit or two words to capture the spirit of our age, it is radical individualism. It is my life is about me. And that doesn't just threaten our world. It threatens the witness of Christ's church. It is an ever-present temptation for us to imbibe and embody a spirit of radical individualism that says, my life, this life is about me. And it impacts our life together because when people threaten that sense of sovereign, radical, individual autonomy, we go, okay, well then I'll just step out and I'll find another group that will tell me exactly what I want to hear about me. And then when this group begins to challenge us, We go, great, I'm going to step out, and I'm going to find another group that will say exactly what I want to be said about me. Or maybe they won't even ask the question. But there is no growth without the challenging conversations that come with living in community. Without people around us saying, I'm not so sure that what you think is true about you is true. Without the, the loving rebuke of a friend, of a member in the body of Christ to say, It sounds like you say a lot of untrue things about yourself. And I want to invite you to a better way. We can't begin to live in the household of faith that God is inviting us into unless we begin to realize that we were created as relational creatures, members of a larger community, members of a household of faith. And this family that God has invited us into This network of relationships in the household of faith, it's not merely for our own benefit, but it is to invite us into partnership with God. Because we were created not just to live as image bearers of God in the context of the household of faith, but we were created to partner with God. He commissions us for this task. Look in verse 28. God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. We are commissioned as partners of God. We're not just created, we're called to a task and that task is to be fruitful and multiply, to cultivate and subdue. This work is a work that we could call dominion. It's it's extending God's kingdom over the whole of the earth, and it has kind of two notes to it. The first is cultivation. Cultivation, this is where we subdue and cultivate God's world. How do we do this? Well, you do this in your vocational life. That's an invitation that God has for you in your vocation, whether you're a stay-at-home parent or you're working somewhere, doing something. God created us as sub-creators, stewards who cultivate his creation in keeping with its goal. A crucial way that we do this is through meaningful work. 
It's through understanding why we do what we do for 40, 50, hopefully not more than 50, but 40 to 50 hours a week. We cultivate, we subdue. Vocation. Another way that we extend God's kingdom and cultivation is through justice. God created the world in shalom. He created the world in peace. It was right. It was good. And one of the ways that we partner with God is extending the righteousness of God through action and through word where there is unrighteousness and wickedness in the world. That's a way that we partner with God in cultivating us to doing. We look at where there is wrong and we say, this is what right would look like. We look at where there is falsehood and we say, this is what truth would look like. We look at where there is hideousness and we say, this is what beauty would look like here. We want to create and cultivate these spaces with justice. We also do this through the right ordering of the world. By being people who step out into the world to help it be properly ordered. God created the world not just shalom, but he created the world tov. He created the world good. It was fitting. It was in proper order. And one of the ways that we cultivate is by working to put disorderly things in order. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean you have to have a clean and organized car. If you've ever ridden with me, you know that's not true. But it does mean that we look at the world and we go, where are things out of whack? Where are things in disorder? Where is there chaos? Now, let's step with the light and the hope and the life of God in Christ, and let's bring order where there is disorder. God invites us to partner with him through cultivation, but he also invites us to partner with him through multiplication. Through multiplication. Now, I want to talk about two aspects of multiplication here. Procreation and disciple-making, okay? Because when we think about multiplication, the original audience would have almost categorically heard this admonition as a call for procreation. Now, the Bible... It dignifies this. It does not diminish it. But it does place it within the context of a greater story over the whole of the history of redemption. So there's two temptations when we hear, be fruitful and multiply. The first temptation is to diminish what God dignifies. To diminish that God dignifies having children. He blesses it. He commends it. It's an honorable fulfilling of part of the task of multiplication in God's world. Right? Having children and raising them is a holy and sacred task. It is. And if you're on the front lines of that endeavor, know that my prayers are with you. I'm there with you in the trenches with a newborn right now. uh, And uh, I know what it feels like. And I know that it's sacrificial. And it is. It's supposed to be. We're loving in a way that reflects God's love to these kiddos in our home. And it is sacrificial. And yet it is meaningful. It may feel small sometimes, but it is incredibly meaningful and significant. God is using you in the life of your home to shape and form hearts and minds, to tell them the true story, to model for them what faithfulness to Yahweh, fidelity to Christ looks like, and that is not a small task. It is a beautiful endeavor. The Bible dignifies this, and we don't want to diminish it. But as history unfolds in the story of redemption, we look at what's called the cultural mandate right here in Genesis 1, 28. Be fruitful, multiply, cultivate, and subdue. We read that like we read the whole of the Old Testament with the lenses of the New Testament on. And when we get to the New Testament, we don't just hear the cultural mandate. We hear the Great Commission, which is go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them and baptizing them. 
And so we are people who see multiplication as not an either or, but as a both and. Dignifying the work of raising children in the fear of the Lord and dignifying the work of declaring the glorious good news of the gospel to everyone who can hear. It's both and. It's not either or. God has commissioned us. We are partners with him to extend his purpose and dominion over the whole of the world. Okay, let me land us here. Because we are partners, there's a fundamental purpose to our lives. And God's purpose for our lives is very different from the dominant stories of our age. The purpose of your life is not complete, free self-expression and self-satisfaction. You're going to die with some of your dreams unfulfilled. You're going to die with some of the desires unfulfilled. You are going to leave this world or Christ is going to come and everything that you wanted will not have come true. You're not going to do it all. You're not going to be able to make it all, build it all, buy it all, experience it all. You cannot do that. To attempt to do so is a road that leads to destruction. But God isn't requiring it of you. God is not requiring it of you. He is inviting you into freedom. Not pretending to be something you're not, but embracing what you are, which is a person, a creature created in the image of God to live in communion with God and other people as they reflect God's purposes in the world. This is an ever-present question that is more crucial now than it's ever been, but we're not asking it for the first time. John Calvin, nearly 500 years ago, in his most significant theological work, he opens it up. First line, nearly the whole of sacred doctrine consists in these two parts, knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. We have to know who God is and we have to know who God is to know who we are and we have to know who we are to know how then we should live. Alistair McIntyre, a philosopher, says, I cannot answer the question, what am I to do? unless I can first answer the question, what story am I living in? The story of Scripture has much to say about who God is, what God has done, and how we are to live in light of that. And a a crucial part of that is living a life that reflects what God has meant for us to be. We are creatures created in the image of God called to live with others in partnership with God to extend his purposes in the world. Irenaeus, an early church father, says, the glory of God is a human being fully alive. So let me ask you, do you feel fully alive? I mean, truthfully, do you feel fully alive? I mean, if you're honest with yourself, are you just surviving? Sometimes that's where it is. Sometimes it's just survival. But we can condition ourselves to believe that's really all that God has for us. It's not. God is inviting us to live, not as walking zombies through this world, constantly in motion, maybe even sprinting in motion at all times, but never really being fully alive. That's not what God has for you and I. And that doesn't begin with flagrantly flaunting our limits, it begins by embracing them. It begins by knowing what we are. 
and by living in a way that's congruent to that. I don't know what God is inviting you today. I don't know what he's inviting you into. I don't know if he's inviting you to embrace your limits as a creature. I don't know if he's inviting you to acknowledge that his judgment of you is the one to base your life on. I don't know if he's inviting you to embrace living life as a member of his people. I don't know if he's inviting you to maybe redirect how you understand your purpose in this world. But I do know that God is inviting you to consider what it means to live fully alive. And I know that Jesus Christ is standing at the door and it is open to a fully alive kingdom. I know that. And over the next few weeks, I hope that maybe we can walk through that door together. He is faithful always faithful. We are creatures, not the creator, and that is good. Let me pray for us. Father, we love you. We thank you for your grace and mercy in Jesus. I thank you that you remind us of what and who we are. I thank you, God, that you invite us to consider what it means to live fully alive, not surviving in the false stories of this world, but living fully alive in the true story of your word. I pray that you would bless us with soft hearts as in the weeks ahead as we consider what will feel like incendiary topics, I pray, God, that you would give us wisdom, counsel from your word, the confidence of the stability of the faith, and I pray that you would give us graciousness and compassion as we explore this together. We pray these things in the name of Christ and by the power of the Spirit. Amen.